Hello everybody once again. Uh, welcome back to the Paperless Federalist. I'm Justin. I'm Gary. Uh, and today we'll be discussing uh, Federalist Paper number 6, done by uh, Mr. Hamilton, uh, concerning the dangers from the dissension between the states uh, and the Independent Journal, published Wednesday, November 14th, 1787, again to the people of the state of New York. Uh, as is our practice here on the Paperless Federalist, we like to start off by a brief overview, uh, a quick, you know, kind of summation of what each paper is about. And then we do a little bit deeper dive uh, into some of the, the things that were going on at the time, uh, some of the references mentioned. It's going to get pretty deep today. It is. It is. Uh, Hamilton uh, plunges us into the 12-foot section of the pool. Uh, <laughs> uh, definitely goes in the deep end. Uh, so get ready. There's a lot to digest uh, as we go through this. And, and Carrie's going to take us off here with a bit of an uh, uh, overview. Thanks, Justin. Well, uh, I think Federalist Number 6, if I could retitle it from its current title, I would think I would retitle it Federalist Number 6, wherein Alexander Hamilton tries to make the view, the reader's head explode. Because uh, he's throwing a lot of facts, a lot of names, a lot of history at you pretty quick. But, as we promised on this show, we're going to break it down and make it digestible. So, yeah. really, once you strip away all the Wikipedia articles that he uh, <laughs> makes you look up, uh, it's a pretty simple idea. Alexander Hamilton here, I think he, I see him as batting cleanup for John Jay. Yeah. You know, we talked a lot about how John Jay was uh, talking about foreign dangers and domestic, and he just never seemed to get around to addressing the domestic part of things. It's made clear here that the domestic threats they're talking about would be if the states were to become, instead of all allies, if they were just to, going to break up into 13 separate states or three or four confederacies. And that's the framework for the analysis here is what would happen in that scenario that he's arguing against. Once he lays out that framework, he really breaks it down into two sub-conversations. First, he rattles off a bunch of examples of he basically posits, look, individuals can make nations be in conflict with one another. Because that's his overriding hypothesis is, if, it, if this became, instead of 13 colonies united, uh, or if it, became, it would break up into 13 separate nations, or three or four confederacies, then they would start fighting with one another all the time, and everybody would be a lot less happy. And as support for that, he's talks about times throughout history that different individuals who have had leadership roles in different states have caused those states to enter into conflict with one another and not necessarily in the best interest of the people uh, who lived in those countries. And then he also lays out, he says, look, I understand that the Anti-Federalists talk about how uh, you know, democracies, uh, republics, tend to not uh, go to war with each other. Um, but then he lays out a bunch of examples throughout history <clears throat> where, in fact, uh, he argues that these nation-states who were democratic in nature or republican uh, in nature, a uh, small r republican there, did, in fact, go to war with, with one another and caused a lot of damage and uh, expense to their countries. Uh, and so you can't have this iron rule that just because a country is a democratic country or a republic that it's not going to go to war with one another. And so after he lays out these, uh, you know, examples of individuals and uh, democratic governments going to war with one another, he tries circles back. And once again, he's arguing this as this is what the anti-federalists want. They want us to be essentially 13 separate countries or three or four separate confederacies. And that would be a disaster. And you could, I can almost hear the anti-federalists screaming in response, we're not arguing that, that's not what we want. But, but that's what he takes as a given. So after he goes out and you know, feels that he has demolished this argument that if they were 13 separate countries or three or four separate countries, they would get along and everything would be fine and dandy, he closes up and you know, he says, look, we've seen how that's a really bad idea. Obviously, you know, that's the road we've been going down under the Articles of Confederation. That's what he seems to imply when he's talking about, in the second to last paragraph, you know, the extreme depression that the national dignity and credit have sunk to, the revolts everywhere. You know, we're going down that road. We need to turn it around. We have to acknowledge that the one way forward that we have to go is to unite under a central power and be one strong centralized government. And if we do that, we won't fight each other. And impliedly, they're going to just be, you know, the 13 states are going to unite into one 
powerful entity that will be perpetually at peace with one another. So that's that's my five minute summation of what I got out of this. Once you strip away, and there's a lot to strip away, yeah. all of the uh, historical <laughs> examples he throw out. Ooh, and we can discuss those in more de- detail, but I think that's the main ideas he's trying to get across. Yeah, I think you're right. The only other thing I would, would touch on briefly as far as broad brushstroke ideas was that Hamilton, when he talks about this idea of, and we'll get into it more later, these confederacies or republics, the you know the fact that they weren't going to war, he, he is saying, look, the anti-federalists federalists believe that the fact that they're commercial in nature and that commercial common you know trade that the colonies or the fledgling states would be engaging in under the Articles of Confederation is not the saving grace that will prevent it from ever going into war with mm-hmm. itself or with each other uh, or with other nations. And the places that he cites are examples of commercial republics that devolved into war, notwithstanding their commercial predilections. But so, this, you know, yeah. and this is an argument that really bears through our present day because it's not just something that was unique to the time. No. You know, modern day advocates of uh, free trade—that's one of the things they use to support it. Is yeah. it's more even it's even more strongly argued today than then. Absolutely, strong trade linkages between countries will tend to. Reduce the likelihood of war because yeah. they won't countries won't want to disrupt disrupt their trade um, yeah. trade routes. And you know, it's it's not without success. I mean, you know, that theory has basis in fact. Okay, after World War Two, they specifically, you know, the powers specifically tied the Germany and French economies together mm-hmm. to prevent the two countries from going to war again in the future. Yeah, I mean, there hasn't and, been a and, European uh, war. <laughs> Okay. Well, Western European War, well, at least, yeah. since World War II. And that's and, and so that was the start, really, of what eventually, over numerous other trees, you know, the, the real start of the EU mm-hmm. started there. Post-World War II, France and Germany... Uh, um, European, the steel community linked, steel communities linked together. Cold steel. And, and cold steel got linked together between those, those economies got linked together, and that was the backbone or the petri dish that eventually led to the EU. Now, we're not here to get into a conversation about, you know, the success or failure of the EU, but... You know, just that, hey, it's been, you know, however long, 70 years, you know, since the World War II happened and, and, and one and two happened in a very short time relative mm. to each other, you know. Yeah. Um, and there seems to have been a, a fairly long break. So there has been some success. This idea of linking of economies could help dissuade war. Uh, I think Hamilton is maybe overstating the anti-federalist case so that he can knock it down. I mean, that <laughs> does seem to be... Uh, but both Jay and Hamilton seem to, it's a favorite rhetorical trick of theirs, is they like to say, well, this is what, this is what the anti-federalists believe, yeah. here's why it's stupid, yeah. when I don't know exact, I don't really feel like they're going out of their way to portray the anti-federalist position completely accurately. It seems to no. me that the anti-federalist position was anything from leaving the Arctic Federation as is, to you know, maybe revising them less ambitiously, but, you know, I haven't seen anything from the NFL saying, let's split back up, this whole United yeah, yeah. States thing is a flop. And we, we talked about that, that, that was part of the NFL's problem was that they were not as organized as the Federalists in, in making their case to the public, mm-hmm. um, because they had a range of opinions, as opposed to one common goal, like the Federalists who want to get the Constitution uh, ratified. Mm-hmm. So anyway, back, looking through number six here, starting from the beginning, Hamilton references Jay. He goes and then he says, look, we're going to talk about domestic issues and domestic problems uh, today. And I, I, I think it's funny the way he starts off. He goes, you know, a man must be far gone in utopian speculations who can seriously doubt that if these states should either be wholly disunited uh, or only united in partial confederates, that the subdivisions into which they might be thrown would have frequent and violent contests with each other. And so basically, he's just like, you got to be really far gone and really just, just out the pat, you know, out in la la land to think that these guys, these confederacies or these states aren't going to turn around and engage in, in armed conflict on yeah, a frequent basis. He's painting the federalists as a bunch of like rainbow and sunshine yeah, hippies just, of like, just, well, we'll just get along. Yeah. No, you know, there will be. And I will say that at, at that initial point, it's probably when I'm most inclined to say, okay, that's, there's some level of fair characterization by yeah. Hamilton there because. Part of the arguments from the anti-federal papers that we've seen is they're saying that the federalists have exaggerated the problem. Mm-hmm. They're talking about phantoms and bugbears and everything about mm-hmm. when you know everything is doom and gloom according to federalists, and we got to do this emergency re- you know reset to fix it all. But the, the anti-federalists sort of argue, no, we're doing fine. It's just we had some bad leaders, but we're like better ones. Everything's fine. Yeah, you know, and we'll work it out with internally. We'll work it out with our overseas. People we have treaties with, 
So mm-hmm. there's some degree of accuracy there. I yeah. Think. So, yeah, I mean, he specifically goes on to say that basically they'd be disregarding a uniform course of human events and, and be set at defiance uh, the accumulated experience of the ages. I mean, he's really just calling them out onto the mat yeah. and just, just saying, you know, how, how dumb are you guys, basically? Yeah. <laughs> you got to acknowledge yeah. that humanity is ambitious, sometimes self-centered, greedy. Yeah. Yeah, and you can't pretend that everyone's going to be a bunch of, you know, angels. Yeah, and so he lists out all the different types of causes for hostilities, and he categorizes them uh, into ones that he considers to be constantly in operation, such as the desire for power or the jealousy of power. Amongst those, he then goes on and talks about some that are more circumscribed, but you know, are kind of sort of always in operation, but not directly such as uh, rival ships of commerce. And then some other ones that are, you know, just kind of have their, their origins entirely in private passions. Okay, and these are, these are people or individuals who rose to power and they're just so consumed with their own power that dictates mm-hmm. and overwhelms their, their better judgment, you know, at the expense of, of the state or the people. And so then he gets into spe- some specific examples. You want to take it away there? With- sure. Well, you know, initially, before we dive oh, yeah, in no, here, yeah. I want to just say that, like, Something I was thinking about as I was reading through this one is we have talked in previous episodes about how the men of the age were men of the Enlightenment uh, and really I was educated on a lot of this classical stuff. Mm-hmm. But here, I don't know. I, I was wondering if Hamilton overdoes it, oversells it. If if going so micro into some of this historical stuff really helped him with his readership in New York because if he's publishing in the newspapers, I mean, do you really think that you know, the, the cobbler down the street or the bookseller or the, well, maybe the bookseller, but a lot of the just regular newspaper readership, what percentage of them do you think really had that much of a knowledge about uh, Pericles, uh, Cardinal Woolsey, these different duchesses? I'm going to say not a lot, but I'm going to say this. I can't imagine that human nature has varied that much in the last few hundred years where, mm-hmm. where the average person wants to admit that they don't have any knowledge of the thing that they read. Mm. Okay. So, so they might have been like, well, this guy seems really smart. We should listen to him. Well, you know, and they're not going to maybe want to admit out loud that they have no idea what it is that they just read. So, uh, you know, when they see a litany of all kinds yeah. of references that they've got no idea what it is, it means they're still going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I agree with that completely because, you know, <laughs> why not? I mean, look at all those examples. And Me and Joe you know, were just talking about the Peloponnesian War last night. Yeah, the last night, you know. And, yeah. and, you know, and I just, I Everybody imagine, does that. I can imagine people, if they say, hey, did you see, you know, Hamilton's thing? Oh, yeah, I saw it. Yeah, well, what did you think? Oh, I mean, all those examples are great. And even if they have no idea what those examples really were, yeah. because they themselves aren't necessarily as educated as Hamilton or the other Federalists or the Anti-Federalists, uh, and, and they're just the average man of the time, man or woman of the time, they might not want to appear unknowledgeable yeah and so he is maybe attempting to overwhelm the 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 debate by just flooding with the intellectual authority yeah and say okay. hey look i know all of this stuff i'm this intellectual and i ha- i'm speaking from an authoritarian point of view because look how much i know because mm-hmm. i can reference all these things you really shouldn't be questioning us yeah <laughs> i can see that okay i mean it's just certainly... something i was thinking when i was looking at it because i was like he in this one specifically. I mean, he lets I don't loose know. a deluge of name drops. You know, yeah, that's for sure. And we're gonna have to uh, help so, people out here and try to parse through a few of them. So let's <laughs> let's go through some of the individual ones about whether they, you know, okay. just to give the reader some context. So the first one he really goes into is he he talks about how the uh, Greek leader Pericles did basically a bunch of bad things because because of his you know will to power and ambition. And you know, if you read this and if you're one of those people. And uh, who doesn't have a, you know, back then, now, whenever, yeah. not real uh, schooled in knowledge of Pericles, and I have to admit, I'm one of them. I'm not, yeah, I don't have a handle on the Pericles anymore. Sounds like an awful guy. He's hanging out with a prostitute. Uh, yeah. He's with some guy who's stealing statues. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, misusing funds, destroying the country through war. But, you know, uh, if you look at the modern conventional wisdom scholarship on Pericles, uh, it seems that to me that... Uh, Pericles is generally considered a pretty positive figure in Athenian history and Greek history. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was apparently uh, one of their main leaders who uh, gave them their reputation for, you know, the value, valuing free speech, uh, you know, encouraging, uh, the, you know, placing a high value on art. Uh, and, uh, you know, this individual who's not this Phidias, mm-hmm. who is made to sound like he's just the most rotten scoundrel going. Apparently he was one of the uh, uh, best... Uh, artist of you know statuary mm-hmm. 
at the time. You know, he had a major role in the construction of the Acropolis and the Parthenon. Mm-hmm. Not the Acropolis, the landform, but the yeah. things on top of it. Okay. And, you know, the, as far as this thing about the prostitute, there was a woman who uh, was from the Turkish colonies in, Gre- in mm-hmm. uh, the Greek colonies in Turkey at the time. Uh, and because of that fact that she wasn't native to Greece, apparently the rule there was that she wasn't allowed to intermarry with a Greek person such as Pericles. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't allowed to marry. They had a kid with one another because they weren't allowed to marry. Uh, apparently her status was something akin to, like, what I'd say, you know, a word would be concubine or mm-hmm. maybe a more accurate word uh, concept would be the, the, the Japanese geisha type con- concept of she was an entertainer. She was a, a professional uh, companion to people, but not like a prostitute, as we would think of the term. Um, but, yes, there were a lot of these rumors about this Pericles individual, but he wasn't as bad as they made, they made him sound. Uh, you know, he did a lot of positive things. And, you know, yes, the Peloponnesian War was lost by the Greeks, but uh, he died before it ended. And just like we forgave uh, Hamilton his any... Uh, responsibility for giving and not giving good advice after he was killed yes i think similarly <laughs> we've got to give pericles the benefit of the doubt of not being able to success, success, successfully win the war after he was no longer alive right. yeah but generally he's death he, tends to limit one's yeah. ability to accomplish things yeah. a lot of these things against pericles uh you know seem to be the normal political stuff of his yeah. enemies just didn't like him and he passed him rumors yeah. you know he next goes on to cardinal Wol- wolsey well, so I, I just before we yeah, the cardinal, yeah. which is it sounds like you're saying that the, maybe Hamilton's first reference here might not be the strongest. You know, it sounds like he basically got the uh, you know the, the one source by Plutarch. Okay. He read it and he took it. He he just basically accepted it in whole. Okay. You know, and, and I'll give you know yeah. to be fair to Hamilton, I'm guessing that their well, he doesn't have the internet. It their version of Wikipedia yeah. <laughs> was uh, pretty limited at the time. Yeah. It took three months to download something via boat. So <laughs> it, maybe it's harder to look at multiple sources. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know he's. He's look. He has a goal here. He wants yeah. to try to throw up examples of here's some bad people who did bad things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't. I feel like it doesn't help him though because the people who know a lot about Pericles might know better. Yeah. And the people who don't know about him will be like, okay, some bad guy did bad things. Yeah. Yeah. Now, much stronger perhaps is his, uh, or more personal to him is his mm-hmm. uh, diatribe against Cardinal Wolsey. This is the second time Cardinal Wolsey has come up. I don't in, know. In two papers. Yeah. <laughs> if. if uh, Hamilton has a serious beef with Cardinal Woolsey or not. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'll have to admit, I did, I did research this in the beginning. The first one I was like saying, uh, when I saw that uh, Hamilton was uh, downing on the Cardinal for trying to get the Triple Crown, I'm like, well, of course that's stupid. He's not even a horse, is he? <laughs> but, uh, apparently, the Triple Crown is not. It had a meaning beyond what we might consider okay. beyond well <laughs> those three are uh, beyond just horse racing okay what? Uh, apparently the triple crown uh, refers to a three the three layered crown that the Pope used to wear I mean you can figure it out from context but yeah. it hasn't it's not as known to modern readers because it hasn't been really used yeah. since the 1960s okay. um, but it was it was the crown used to crown the Pope basically gotcha. okay. it looked like a it looked like a layer cake it's on the papal flag the papal seal Gotcha. But, uh, okay. you know, he's basically casting aspersion at Woolsey for trying to, you know, become the next pope and putting his mm-hmm. own duties to England, you know, second. I don't know. You know, I have a little bit more knowledge of British history than I do Greek. And that just sounds to me completely inaccurate because okay. Why? Cardinal Woolsey was sort of between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, he wanted to get in and go with the pope when, the, when England was Catholic. But I think, you know, uh, there's a little bit more knowledge of Henry VIII than Henry VIII's quest to get a male heir and the big issue with Cardinal Woolsey was he Henry VIII wanted to get an annulment from his wife who wasn't bearing him a male heir Cardinal Woolsey was trying to ask the Pope for it the Pope was beholden at the time to Charles V so Charles V wouldn't let him do it the Pope mm-hmm. and so you know Woolsey you know, fell out of power uh, because of that I mean I and I never saw much in history talking about how Cardinal Woolsey was trying to advance the uh, the plans of Charles V. He mm-hmm. just couldn't get, you know, he was just stuck, uh, you know, between the will of the Pope and Charles V and the will of Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in any case, if he's trying to move English policy, he wasn't very successful at it. But then uh, he refers to oh. these duchesses and... 
yeah, whatnot. And, and the interesting thing here again is Hamilton takes the approach of saying, "Oh, hey, there are these three duchesses that well, one was bigoted, one was petulant, and one had cabals." Uh, yeah, uh, but they're they're escapades. Thank you. All right, so escapades. Sorry. Yes. All right, sorry. So he goes on and says, "You know, these three women's escapades. You know, throughout history, are so well documented, we barely need to even talk about them." Well, you know, again, you know, we get back to the common person and reading reading the article. Mm-hmm. You know, sitting around. Getting a copy of the paper. The unwashed masses. I don't know that that really would be accurate, but for the reader today, he he references the influence of uh, these women. The influence the first uh, bigot, uh, bigoted, um, and that's uh, Madame de Menton, who apparently was the second wife of Queen, uh, King Louis the Fourteenth of France, and she came from a very lower social status. So although married, they were never officially. Uh, there's no official documentation dem- uh, documenting the marriage. It was a marriage in secret, but historians now accept that she was technically married. She was never officially became queen at any one point. Uh, she was sort of a woman of the court who had influence over King uh, Louis XIV in France. She appears to be a strongly religious person and was was very influential in the in the king's decisions at least while she was around him. Okay. Um, so that means she did anything particularly wrong by the country that we know of? Not that I could find. <laughs> okay, and maybe you know we'll circle back at some point. In, in fill in the blank. If Maybe we, she had somehow wronged Hamilton in a way similar to how Woolsey did. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. know. Then there's the petulance of another is the next phrase he uses. And this is... Uh, Petulant Duchess Marlborough. Yes, yes. Uh, and now there are numerous Duchess Marbles over time, but I think I found the right one uh, that he was attempting to refer to. And uh, she rose to power because she was a close friend with Queen Anne of Great Britain before she became queen and then while she was queen. She had her intra, uh, influence and friendship with the Princess Anne at the time was mm-hmm. widely known and led uh, many public figures to try to court Sarah, who's the first name of Duchess Marvel, mm-hmm. first name, uh, to court her uh, good favor in order to try to convince Princess Anne to do or not do something. Uh, by the time Anne became queen, uh, Sarah had an extensive knowledge of government and the queen uh, and was a very powerful friend and a dangerous enemy to anybody. Uh, who was looking uh, to have a good favor with the queen. So then, she just told her what she thought, basically, and didn't sugarcoat she did. it. She did. She didn't sugarcoat it, and hence the phrase being petulant. Um, ah. Okay. And, and they had a bit of a falling out over time. Uh, Sarah apparently was very moody. She didn't really like the, the politics and the political life, although she liked power. So she managed to get a, a large... Sarah is, lady, is Duchess Marlborough? Yes. Yeah, I didn't Duchess know you Marlborough. guys were on a basis. Well, I think I thought I said that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Sarah managed to get uh, a grant of land and a, an estate uh, from the queen, and then you know she stopped wanting to come around and, and hang out with the queen, and uh, and they both had family losses and uh, a personal. Uh, Sarah lost her, her child, and queen lost her husband along the way, and uh, there was some hard feelings, uh, and they had a bit of a falling out. But all that aside, uh, appears that. Sarah, our Duchess of Marble, uh, very opinionated and uh, very much had influence or sway over the Queen of Britain for a uh, Queen Anne of Great Britain for a time. And then the last one that he mentioned, Madame de Pompadour. Yes, and the Cobbles of the Third. Madame de Pompadour was a member of the French court, and she was the official chief mistress of Louis the Fifteenth. And fancy title. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, so she ends up though becoming fairly important. Uh, this one I was able to figure out a little bit more on. She was brought in to help negotiate and intervene, at least, into the negotiations of the Treaty of Versailles, uh, which was the start of the diplomatic revolution, uh, which allied France uh, with Austria. They used to be enemies, uh, Mm -hmm. but they managed to get together through the Treaty of Versailles, which ultimately then led into the Seven Years' War, outcome of which was Britain becoming uh, victorious in the war, France losing their colonies in uh, North America, and really suffering from, uh, from the war. Okay. Um, so it didn't turn out well, basically. It, it did not. Uh, it did not turn out well. No, not at all. All right. Well, that, let's <laughs> talk to you a little bit about the points he makes because he's that, yeah. that's the individuals. Those are the individuals. And yeah. you know, I feel like a weakness of that are, of all of these is I can understand what he's saying as far as you know you got to watch out because you know one of the reasons our states or these confederacies aren't going to stay at peace with each other is just going to have ambitious individuals yeah. who for their own ends are going to try to encourage conflict but where i think there's that's weaker is what's to say you know if you're going to unite all power into one strong central government what's to say those same type of individuals will not have an equal ability to encourage national conflict with other nations you're forgetting john jay's point 
Sir? That they're going to be the best man. The, the only world. the enlightenment, the cream of the crop, and the total you know um, pure of heart will seek office at the national level, or will even be able to obtain office at the national well, level. Well, I mean, <laughs> with that apparent monster, Cardinal Wolsey, maybe that's the case. You yeah. know that he wouldn't get the power in yeah. the American yeah. system, but someone like Pericles yeah. in in Greece, he seemed to be. You know, when he died, nobody was like, oh, thank God we got rid of Pericles. I mean, <laughs> he was generally acknowledged to be one of Athens' best best into mass leaders. And, yeah. you know, one of the reasons they lost the war was everybody after him wasn't as good. Yeah. Um, so uh, even those best men, you know, mm-hmm. like someone like Pericles, who was generally great, yeah. you know, was ambitious and got into wars in a sort of wag-the-dog situation of, you know, one of the reasons his critics said he went to war was, he was getting attacked by political enemies, mm-hmm. and he launched wars to avoid, to distract everyone yeah. from his own political controversies. Yeah. But I mean, I just, I don't feel like he, that he really closed the door on saying how these leaders, these individuals with sketchy designs will be, you know, how a, a national system will make them less likely to cause trouble than a state system. They'll just cause the trouble to higher no, level. No, I mean, if anything, his first reference to Pericles is maybe seems not wholly accurate, Okay. And, yeah. and and just from a straight debate point of view, he makes references to the three women with the assumption that everyone who reads this paper would <laughs> automatically know who they are and what they did. Maybe and, they were a lot in the news at the time. You know, they just aren't now. I, maybe. Okay. <laughs> I know if I were going to uh, you know, hurl the insult at someone that they were as I, petulant I as the... Uh, uh, Madame Pompadour? Well, I think she <laughs> was no, the cabal. Right. I think, was, uh, like, I'm sorry, you're talking about uh, Duchess of Marlborough. The Duchess of Marlborough. I'm not sure if they feel insulted or not. And I'd want them to be if I was intending as an insult. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But I again, know. I feel like they're weak on the... They're weak on the... They're short... They're nearsighted regarding the domestic aspect, too. Because they're using, again, in a sense of what's currently domestic, these states, will yeah. be end up being foreign powers to one another, fighting one another, I feel like they still haven't addressed the idea of the main concern of the Anti-Federalists of if all power is vested in a strong central government, or most power, oh, better. you know, will individuals with designs and plans and schemes like this, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there might be less of a danger of them getting into an, causing us to get into an international war, mm-hmm. but isn't there a danger that they could exercise their power in such a way as to crush dissent and, you know, take away freedom from the individual citizens from the component states. I think that's really one of the main worries of the Anti-Federalists. Yeah, they were your separate uh, substituting a president for a king that they just got rid of. Yeah, you know. And I just feel like the Federalists it's sort of non-responsive of I, I don't I don't think this hurts their argument necessarily, but I don't think it helps it either. Yeah. And that so, such individuals that they're troublemakers can yeah. be troublemakers in either system. And in this paper they haven't really said why they can cause less tr- trouble with a, an American republic than they could in a Greek one or a no. British one or a what have you. He gives one more example. Well, before he gets into Shay's Rebellion, though, what does he say that's interesting here? He goes, he goes. Uh, there's too many examples of the agency of personal consideration in the production of great national events, either foreign or domestic, according to the direction, would be an unnecessary waste of time. And basically says, look, I, I don't even need to go through any more examples? There's, there's just so many. You guys, either, I'm so right. I'm so right, and and honestly, I shouldn't have to spell it out for you. It seems like the tone he takes here, yeah. uh, and he's like, so I'm just going to give one more that everyone should be aware of because it's just happened here domestically, and that's this Shay's rebellion. Yeah. And he casts again Shay as this desperate debtor, debtor, and that is, you know, and just this downtrodden guy who was who was desperate, and and you know, uh, and if he'd been anything other than a desperate debtor, you know, Massachusetts might have devolved into civil war. And and that's a perfect example as to why you need to have a strong national government for, to prevent things like that from occurring. Um, I think that's sort of a silly way of putting it. In some ways, a, 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 a ba- I think it's a weak argument because to to characterize Shea as that is, is to imply that he was somehow unique at the time and mm-hmm. owing a lot of money and, and being a debtor, like it was some due to him, like he yeah. gambled it all away or he was just bad with money management. Mm-hmm. When it seems much more likely to be the case, based on historical record, that he was symbolic of a class. The people who what? rebelled with him were all that way. The poor farmers whose banks came in, and or, you know, or the, the creditors managed to get judgments in courts and took their homes. Exactly. It wasn't like everybody else who rebelled with him was like, we're all good, but we like Shay so much, we want to help him out. out. Yeah. I mean, that's, that would be sort and of silly. And, and Shay wasn't out there running around by himself. Exactly. Yeah. And so... 
the way he puts it, of, oh, if only Shay wasn't a debtor, nothing bad would have happened. Yeah. To me, that's, you know, by or, putting that individual inside the system, that's like saying, if only the sun wouldn't rise, yeah. I wouldn't get a sunburn. Or, or, or that, it's going you know, to. If Shay had been something other than a debtor, yeah. there might have been more value in, in, in what he was attempting to do, and it would have grown, grown into something larger. You know? Yeah. And he, you know, he just sells sells Shay fairly short. I just think it's you know? it's not, it's misdirected to try to characterize Shay is being a unique, uh, being a problem of the individual rather than the system at the time. It seems at the time, you know, and he has to tacitly acknowledge it later on mm-hmm. when he talks about the rebellions in other states and in Massachusetts. It wasn't just one guy; yeah. it was something going on throughout the, the the colonies at the time. I think that we uh, look we're looking at where we are in time. Let's go into some of okay. the uh, more national examples so, uh, and try to get through those in a real concise manner, so we have more time to do some analysis. Okay. So then he gets into and in the next phase of the second half of this paper, the next phase of it, he gets into this idea of like, look, you're going to keep hearing from we keep hearing from these people that that argue this paradox of perpetual peace between the states what, that are dismembered, and and he says it's just it's something that again is is not borne out uh, through history, and they say that and and Hamilton is saying that. The argument coming from the other side is that commercial republics, like the one we have, are somehow immune to mm. problems and war between themselves and less likely to get in war with others because they've got this common bond of commercial, their economies are tied together and therefore they're more, they're less likely to war with one another. Mm. Uh, and But also because they're democratic in nature. And yeah. so they're not subject to the whims of a, a king or an emperor. Yes. And so he goes through, he, he spends, he has like a page of high, you know, various rhetorical questions that he poses, uh, which we won't need to go through them. If you want to read them or listen to them at some point, the, the person, our listeners can go. But he throws out a few republics that he say, really break that rule. And so, yeah. And so he says, look, I'm going to give you a guide through history as to why this system isn't necessarily any better than any other one. And then he goes into these historical references. Mm-hmm. And why don't you take, he mentions Athens, Rome, Carthage, and Sparta. What's yeah, yeah I'll take a few. I'll, I'll cover the ones I, we split these up. Uh, Carthage versus Rome. That was one of the big ones. He basically says Carthage and Rome, they were both republics. They went to war. They you know did a lot of damage to each other. You know They weren't mm-hmm. helped by the fact that they didn't have kings or anything. In Carthage versus Rome, he's talking about the Punic Wars, and you know Carthage and Rome at the time were you know fighting for control of the Mediterranean. It was pretty obvious that you know, as we talked about before, uh, with mercantilism generally, one every each of them thought that the, the other one would have to win or lose at the other's expense, and the whole thing was tripped off uh, in a sort of a strange way. There was a. Uh, the uh, island of Sicily between them was heavily contested, and uh, there was a king of Sicily uh, who used a bunch of mercenaries uh, or, or Roman mercenaries to enforce his rule. The king died. Uh, the mercenaries had nobody left to work for, and they were sort of just marauding around the island. And so the Romans were deciding what they wanted to do about it. The Carthaginians went in and decided to uh, take over the city that the the mercenaries were in to calm everything down, but they were. They were in the town of Messina, which is right across the very narrow strait from you know, mainland Italy. The Romans felt like, okay, we can't let them keep that or they can hit us at any time. So then they attacked, and that's where it all started. It sort of was like, reminds me of the start of World War One. Okay. It sort of like was inadvertent, and it just spiraled out of control because once they were warring, each of the sides decided, well, let's try to take control of the Mediterranean. Sparta, I feel like, is non-responsive just because it was such a military state that I don't think... Yeah, he, he, it seemed like he chucked Sparta off to the side. And he said, look, Rome and Sparta are always warring. But Carthage, um, and Rome. Carthage specifically was a commercial republic, which is like what the Anti-Federalists are saying the colonies or the states should be and continue to be a commercial republic, and that by nature of being a commercial republic... Should not be going to war. W- they wouldn't be going to war, and you'd be better off like it. And here he's using this Carthage and Roman war by saying, look, Carthage, the commercial republic according to Hamilton, starts a war with Rome that leads to its own downfall. Mm-hmm. And so the na- its nature of being a commercial republic didn't do it any good. Yeah. You know, and uh, Holland, Holland is another example that falls under the same model. You know, okay. The Dutch Republic was, uh, you know, it was characterized as a republic. It was often considered a negative example of democracy and republic. Uh, when we revisit it in, uh, I think it's Federalist Number 20, it's really run down the road as a horrible example. You know, <laughs> let's not be like them. Uh, and I think some of the reasons uh, that they put in that paper in number 20 
sort of undercuts Hamilton's point here in number six, which is that, yeah, the Dutch Republic was made up of uh, seven voting and one non-voting component parts, but... Yeah, they had you know, uh, you know, they had representative uh, votes on things. But when push came to shove, when it came to military operations or war, and I think it was an important point, a general called a stadtholder would take control, and they were pretty much always members of the Dutch royal family, the princes of Orange. And so, yeah. how much of a you know, that's not the same as having an elected president. If you always have this member of royalty who when it becomes the head of everything when there's a war. But then secondarily, you know, the, unlike the United States, the Dutch uh, Republic is sort of a unique example because, I mean, think of where the Netherlands are. Right, they're right smack in the middle of all these warring, at the time, kingdoms. And no matter what they would want to do, they were always intermixed in what the kings around them wanted to do. And so I don't know how responsive that is. And I think the last example was what you were looking at with... Uh, well, there's a couple. There's a couple okay. of examples. He goes... He goes through. So uh, he mentions another one with with Venice and uh, the League of Cambrai. Okay, again, this is another one that doesn't leap off the page for me. Uh, so I had to go look, do a little looking up. Uh, so for those at home, uh, back in 1508, Pope Julius II was not happy with the amount of influence in northern Italy that the Venetian state had. Uh, and and at that time, Venice, or the Venetian state, was a, sort of its own nation state. And it comprised much more than just the city of Venice, as you know we might think of it today. It was a major power on the north side of the north northern region of Italy, and there had been some efforts prior to this to attack Venice and, and the Venetians that failed miserably. Mm -hmm. And so the Pope forms this League of Cambria. It was comprised of the Papacy, France, the Holy Roman Empire, and Ferdinand I of Spain. And their idea was that they were going to go in there, they were going to wipe out Venice, uh, this territory. In Italy, and then they're going to partition it, partition it amongst themselves. Okay. Okay. Uh, and initially, Louis the the fourteenth, the Sun King. No, Louis the twelfth. He's very successful, and he goes in there, and he literally he takes out the Venetian army. Okay. Yeah. But then the Pope is not too happy with how influential uh, and and how much of a foothold France has in Italy. <laughs> okay. Okay. So then he turns around and he makes an alliance with the Venetians against France a couple years later in 1510. Okay. Okay. In order to expand, uh, expel France from Italy. So ultimately, when this whole thing gets said and done in 1515, because there's constant other you know agreements between parties and factions and they, they fight it out. But when it's all said and done, there's a treaties of treaties of Nyon and, and Brussels which ends the war, and the map of Italy is basically back to what it was in 1508 before this League of Cambria was formed. <laughs> so, okay. all right, so I, I just, I don't see why Hamilton, like, threw that in here. I mean, well, yes, the League of Cambria was successful, and in, 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 in Venice was a commercial state, and the fact that it was a commercial entity didn't necessarily protect it from war, yeah. and, it, and it lost its a lot of its power and, and land as a result because of the League of Cambria, but ultimately, it ended up back to where it was at, you know, prior to this league. So the league itself wasn't necessarily successful in permanently, you know, restraining, restraining the, the influence of the commercial of state, of the, of the Venetian state. Yeah. So uh, maybe not the best example. I mean, because he has so many examples in this paper. I think he could have left this one out, but it is what it is. <laughs> well, you know, there's something he doesn't mention in this paper, but I think that because it didn't really exist, then, but I think it's a great framework to encapsulate it all the way he's talking about. It's something I learned about as a poli-sci major back in uh, undergrad was uh, this idea that he doesn't label this way, but this uh, it's called de democratic peace theory. Mm -hmm. And that's basically this theory that really uh, grew has grown in foreign policy circles that democracies don't go to war, particularly with one another. And it wasn't really de developed and labeled that much back then, although, interestingly enough, one of the earliest proponents of, of it was none other than Thomas Paine, a uh, noticed anti-federalist, hmm. uh, in his paper, The Co you know, Common Sense. He talked about how the republics of Europe are all always in peace. What? And so, yeah, in a mistake on him, yeah. right, uh, such an absolute, <laughs> okay. since then... You know, there's been a lot of writing and scholarship on democratic peace theory, mm -hmm. and although they say, although the current you know conventional wisdom is that it tends to make it less likely that a democracy will be in war, there's a lot more equivocation on it. You yeah. know, basically, in saying because 
it's not like many things in life. It's not always black and white. You know, one of the things they talk about is how much of a democracy is a given democracy. That's what I was going to ask know? you. I mean, because let's let's be honest. The uh, uh, I mean, like Saddam Hussein was constantly reelected to power. And well, but I think you know. But my my point. That's is, an extreme example. It is an extreme example, but. You know, it might be labeled a democracy. Now, we mm-hmm. can ask the question, you know, and you are, you started, like, does mm-hmm. this theory hinge on what level of free democracy, you know? Yeah, it yeah. does. It okay. does. So it sounds like it does. Because um, on one extreme, you would have something like that. Direct democracy, yeah. where everybody voted on everything. Yeah. But then, you know, again, we're talking about the critiques of, like, the uh, the Dutch Republic. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when they went into war, this head general, the stadtholder, took over, and he pretty much had absolute power, mm-hmm. for the most part. And then similarly, you know, when... When Rome went to war, it would put somebody in, you know, absolute. I mean, even when they weren't at war, they'd have two consuls that alternate power, and so, you know, the United States itself has a relatively strong executive, you know, versus a, a country where, you know, it'd be more parliamentary and they could be tossed out at any time. The United States president stays in for four years. So one of it is one of the elements is how much, especially when it comes to military operations, you have one individual with a lot of power to do a lot of things with or without, without you know, permission to do it mm-hmm. versus how much they require permission every step of the way. But there, there's, there's other elements, too, about, you know, where you talk about, you know, that's called a non-binary classification. It's not just black and white democracy versus tyranny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, but do you count against a democracy if it, it's in a war because someone attacked it? Mm-hmm. You know, think of all the times in just the last hundred years where... I mean, you know, when France was attacked by Germany, mm. you know, or when Poland was attacked by Germany, mm. when, when a democracy is attacked, do you count it as going to war? I mean, well, is that your fault? Attacked by Germany. Exactly. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of so-and-so yeah. was attacked by Germany. Yeah. I think, you know, with the additional development of this framework of democratic peace theory that's arisen since then, it's not as black and white as Hamilton makes it out. And, but that seems to be the argument he's responding to is a very early version of democratic peace theory espoused by Dom- Thomas Paine and some other thinkers of the time. It's, it's that. It's almost like commercial republic peace theory. You know, it's that, mm-hmm. you know, that the fact that there are under the Article of Confederation that, you know, hey, they're a commercial republic and therefore they're just going to be in this mm-hmm. constant state of peace mm-hmm. is just ridiculous to Hamilton. And, he, and almost when you read the paper, even now, you did at least, I felt like I got a sense of just, just his disgust with even just having to address this. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that is why he just fires off so many historical examples that he can get his minor great examples and put them in there. You know, um, and just one after another, after another, after another. It's because he just feels so frustrated with even having to address this. You know, mm-hmm. he's like almost like the anti-federalists should know better. But is than it sincere this. or is it contrived disgust? Because uh, it seems no. contrived to me because a lot of the it doesn't seem like this argument really moves the ball down the road very far or down the field very far because. Well, I guess, number one, I start with the assumption that this is not... What he's arguing against is not really what the Anti-Federalists are arguing for. Well, hold on, no. The Anti-Federalists, though, do say, look, we talked about it. They say things have been going pretty well. We're trading with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we're at peace. And, you know, why do we really need to have this more stronger, centralized power of government? Because things have been going fairly well. That's a point. Okay. Fair point. All right. And so, and he's saying... But he takes it to absurd he's saying, Well, he is. But he's saying, like, you guys are nuts if you think that the fact that you're a commercial organization for the most part, and that's going to protect you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's what he's trying to say. And now, he does finally, I think, hit on probably his best example. And the one that the uh, personal, the average reader of the paper would be most familiar with and most likely to acknowledge and understand is he uses the example of Britain here. And he says, look, you know, Britain is, has been a commercial power for a very long time, but they have also gone around the globe colonizing and warring almost mm-hmm. for almost just as long. So mm-hmm. the fact that it is commercial in nature has not made it a peaceful utopia. Mm-hmm. Okay, if anything, you know, the commercial nature of Britain helped perpetuate its, its, its wartime efforts. That, I think, is, a, is an example that the average reader would look at and say, oh, okay. And be able to get, you know, but I think there's a chink in in Hamilton's armor there in his okay. in his argument of he, you know, the, he, there's just that argument has a weakness insofar as not everybody I think would take it as a given that you know it's always bad for the country to go to war. It seems to be that you know he's got a strong argument when he talk about you know kings and despots mm-hmm. you know will go to war 
not in in their own interests yeah. yeah. and not in the interests of their their countries. You know, I mean, in British history, mm -hmm. uh, the British king was very frequently fighting for territories in France, who the people of England didn't particularly care about. Mm -hmm. But it was all part of the ruling king, you know, ruling dynasty, these holding company. Whereas, you know, if Carthage versus Rome, you know, both of them were fighting over trading rights and influence in the Mediterranean. And would the people have the same issue? I mean, that ostensibly seemed to be both sides were going for things that were in their people's own interest. Because mm -hmm. well, if that whichever country controlled the Mediterranean, their people would have a much better ability to do business there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah, he lays out that the, you know, these... Uh, despots would not be doing things in their country's own interests, but is the same level of prohibition there if you have a country that's going to war to protect its citizens' interests? Uh, and I feel like uh, it shouldn't be. I think most of, my, most of the uh, citizens would say, well, if we're getting bullied around and we can't do any ocean trading, for example, in the Atlantic because another country is hurting our commerce... Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have a problem. Well, that was the cry. That, well, that was the cry that people had in World War II when our ships going to Europe were getting mm -hmm. attacked by U-boats. So yeah. that wanted to get into the war at that point for that very reason. And and and, uh, and, and we were, and we're brought on the War of eighteen twelve as well with British impressment and uh, yeah. British uh, impairment of uh, so, American naval sovereignty. Um, so those are certainly at least causes of war that are more acceptable. It sounds like to the pop, the general people. And I don't think he parses that out finely enough because, you know, he gives this example of, you know, the wars between Austria and the Bourbons or the Habsburg dynasty and the Bourbon yeah. dynasty. And I think the most helpful way to think about that is, you know, again, you had these royal families who they, the, the countries that they owned were part of a family concern. You know, uh, you know, mm -hmm. when, you know, the rulers of England also had lands in France, the people in France didn't speak English. Mm -hmm. It was just, they were two separate countries controlled by the same monarch. Similarly, you know, the Habsburgs had lands all over Europe. And it was just all one of one holding concern. And I think I think people back then thought of their allegiance to their rulers somewhat differently. I think that, you know, before the rise of you know, nation states in the same way that the countries would always be ruled by one of their own, you know, it might it might have been something more akin to how people now think about their their, their employer. Like say you work for Microsoft or for Apple and you know, your company is launching this big initiative to buy out, you know, Google or Yahoo or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's nice for your company and everything, but you don't work for that part of it. You know, you don't really care. It doesn't really matter to you. Your main thing is you don't, you hope that you don't, your own pay and benefits and everything don't have to suffer too much. And to forward that effort, you're not mad if it succeeds, but you're not going to rejoice if it happens because how does it affect you? It seems like I think that people who lived in those countries back then might have thought similarly about they wouldn't care as much. It's not the same way as nowadays. If your country wins a war, you know, you're exultant because your country just won a war. If you lose a war, you're crushed because you feel like, oh, this is going to really hurt us. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just think that, you know, he doesn't really divide out between when they're fighting in national interest versus individual interest. Because I think that, you know, a lot of citizens wouldn't have as much of a problem when they felt like the war was for their national interests, mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. is my thinking. Okay. So then he goes on, he poses this last question, and he says, Is it not time to awake from the deceitful dream of a golden age and to adopt a practical maxim for the direction of our political conduct that we, as well as other inhabitants of the globe, are yet remote from the happy empire of perfect wisdom and perfect virtue. And so first I want to ask you about your take. Again, he mentions, at least impliedly, mm -hmm. that we're going to become an empire, right? An interesting empire. Yeah, we talked about that the first time. But here he says, hey, we're not part of this happy empire, so we should try to, to deal with that and find a practical maximum. And this, this, you know, what we have right now is just insufficient. Well, man, he's not, I, he's, I don't see him talking about a literal empire. I no. think basically what I was saying there is, you know, we're, we're just human beings. We're not... We're not angels or otherwise perfect, so it's silly to think that well, I think, I think he's we're going to be able to avoid wars in the future. Well, yeah, and what I guess I'm saying is he, I think he is casting the a nation under the Article of Confederacy as this happy empire, maybe, you know. Self-deluded, if they self think it's going to work. Yeah, that, you know, nobody, not us and no one else in the globe is part of this yet happy empire that is, mm -hmm. you know, perfect wisdom and perfect virtue, so... You know, whatever the anti-federalist position is, is just, I mean, they're just, 
you know, delusional if they think it's going to work. And then he's, he's poking fun at them, you know. Uh, but um, then he goes on and and he, he goes, look, he lists out four more things here as, as his further basis for his thesis. He mentions the, the national dignity and our credit as a nation has, has sunk a bit. Okay, mm-hmm. we're owed a lot of money. We can't pay our debts. That there's a bunch of ill inconveniences felt everywhere throughout the the, the, the states uh, due to the inefficiencies of the government. Uh, he mentions a let the revolt of part of uh, the state of North Carolina. I looked into this a little bit, and this is uh, apparently was an uprising um, okay. uh, between 1765 to 1771. Okay, and this is a classic situation. Here. Similar to like Shays' rebellion, or it was. It is. It, it kind of follows the same type of thing where. Uh, as the population in North and South Carolina in the late 1760s apparently had a dramatic increase, okay, and, and along the coast, and then people move west. And then as more greater populations move west, uh, different types of people move west, mm-hmm. okay? And the people who had been more inland in the Carolinas, uh, especially in North Carolina, were very rural and farmers. Mm-hmm. And they had experienced a decade's worth of droughts and hard times. Okay. Uh, and they end up getting in debt. And they end up losing their homes and their properties to to merchant class. Okay. So it is very similar to, to Shays' yes, rebellion. Yes, it's, it's very yes. Okay. Rural versus urban interest. It is. So they end up a lot of court cases, a lot of foreclosures, leads to class war, leads to political corruption going on, uh, and then there ends up being this uh, regulator uprising, or also known as War of the Regulation, or the Regulatory War. It goes by different names, and basically it's a struggle between low, mostly lower class citizens who made up the majority of the of the you know quote unquote backcountry of the population, and in the elitist five percent slice of the pie, you know upper crust of society. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ultimately, the militia was brought in and, and crushed the rebellion and hung its leaders. Okay. <laughs> so but it plays out pretty much. It it's very similar to Shays' rebellion. Point for point, Shays like Shays' you know, rebellion. And then he mentions interesting. It's not just, as famous in history. No, it's not. I never heard of it before this. Uh, and the disturbances in Pennsylvania, which I couldn't figure out what exactly he was talking about there. And then he again mentions rebellions in Massachusetts, which, which I think is probably the Shays' rebellion. Uses all those as examples to say, look, commerce is not going to be the thing that saves us. Yeah. We can't pay our debts now. Like the government is inefficient, and we're just we're a mess. You know. Yeah. And so we need something new. So. Um, that's kind of his closing uh, argument, or he has one more point, maybe. Well, I think we're. I think we can wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think let's for closing. Uh, we've thrown a lot out there about his arguments. How about we each go through, and uh, you, I'll start with you, Justin. Uh, the big question is, are you buying it? Where do you think Hamilton was strongest in this paper? Where do you think he was weakest? Weakest, and then after you lay out those to, those two uh, considerations, are you buying it? And do you think the people would, would read it? Would have bought it. So I guess that's four questions. Okay, uh, I'll try to do my best. Let's see. So I would, I would just say this. I've done a fair amount of appellate work in the earlier stages of my career as an attorney. And when I'm going into in front of the appellate court, when I would go to make an argument, I'd want to make sure that I was as to the point and as direct and as, as dialed in as I could be. Yeah. Giving a laundry list of examples, I never felt was the best way to go. If I had one or two really strong yeah, examples, apparently disagree with you. <clears throat> apparently, did, and so that's why I don't. This is where I think he fails in this article. Yeah. Um. In the, in this is that giving a dozen examples to prove your point, they all can't be your strongest. There's yeah. got to be one or two in there that are really your focus ones that you focus in and you say, this is why right here, why this point's valid, and this other point I'm trying to make. Here's one or two other things that back that point up. And you seem more credible if you if you can say here are these couple things that really back me up that are that are you know we've dealt with this before it's been decided before and this is the same factual pattern presented to the court again you've already addressed this in these other two times and you should do the same again this time okay mm-hmm. like that is a pers- way to be persuasive and and I think the same thing could be said here in his argument where he's trying to say that you know commercial nations aren't in and of themselves immune to war and a bastion of peace and, and prosperity at all times. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that a commercial enterprise of uh, a commercial republic is just not is is not guaranteed to cost uh, have a, a conglomerate of states that are just always at peace with one another and never going to war. He could have very easily said, "Here are one, two, maybe three examples of that," and been very succinct. Rather uh, than burying okay. them with obscure facts. Bear, yes, burying the reader with with a, a litany of uh, of things and and in just. Having some throwaway names like the madams. Well, madam here, and you know, boom, boom, boom. You guys already know about that. I don't even have to go into it. Well, if you don't have to go into it, 
why put it in there? Okay. <laughs> so, he was probably you just know, chomping at the bit after being in the back burner of Jay so long. I don't know. Maybe. So you're not buying it. Well, I, you know, I guess I'll just say this. is well, I think his, his general argument is right, that commercial enterprises aren't in and of themselves uh, you know, a guarantee of peace amongst a collection of nation states. I get that and I agree with that. But I think he should have limited his his analysis to two or three examples to and, and ones that the reader, his general audience and his reader would have most likely been able to pick up on and understand. I think Britain would have been one that the common mm. person would have understood. Okay, I don't know some of the obscure references to French political high society yeah. that the average person would have got. And I think he gets off the rails in wanting to just beat the NFLers down and, and, and doing that in an overwhelmingly high wave of, of references. Okay. And, and ones that, like he mentioned, these guys are all from the Enlightened period that they like, and he's trying to highbrow them and talk down to them with this, you know, oh, look how knowledgeable I am. My knowledge is bigger than yours. He, and he's so one to serve him in an eloquent fashion. Okay. And, and I think here he, he comes across as, as you know, again, as just, Overstating his case, and he could have been more persuasive and by more, more factual by being more precise and, and, and direct. Well, let me get. I feel like Hamilton was strongest at rebutting the cockeyed optimist view that some, as we said, some of the anti-federalists put out of everything's great, everything's fine. We're mm-hmm. not going to be fighting now or ever. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to be coming to get their debts from us. Things are great, they'll always be great. I think that's one of the weaker anti-Federalist arguments. Yeah. I think he destroys it. I think it is hard to argue that, yes, human nature is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not suddenly going to be a bunch of angels. I think that's where he's at his strongest. Yeah. I think he's at his weakest because you say, okay, so what? You beat their weakest argument, You and you can't... Even though you say what you say might be true about, you know... Individuals and states being uh, selfishly aggressive when there's a bunch of dueling states and individual interests at play. It seems like he doesn't respond or answer at all the uh, the accusation that well they could do the same thing within a powerful state, and in some ways it could be worse. So I think that's where his weakest there of not anticipating the next argument down that logical road. Mm-hmm. As far as whether I'm buying it. I don't buy it just because, you know, with the benefit of 200 plus years of 2020 hindsight, Mm -hmm. I think history has shown that, you know, there are times within even democracies where powerful individuals and interests can cause things to go a bit off the rails. I'm sorry. No, I agree with you on that point. So (laughs) I'm not buying it because I think he, because I, I wanted him to go to the next step of saying, you know, even if I don't agree with his conclusion, Mm. how checks and balances would constrain that. And maybe that's coming up. We haven't maybe, seen yeah. it. Yeah, we're still in the early but, stages. Uh, but finally, even though I'm not buying it, mm-hmm. I think it would sell well to his readership at the time, even though he might irritate him with his highbrow language at some point, mm-hmm. if you're just a regular uh, reader on the street. I think where he's strongest to them, that would cause them to buy it, is by emphasizing this, how bad things are. Mm-hmm. Credit's bad. People are, you know, our states are arguing with each oh, other. Yeah. And if we if we kept it like that or made it more formally separate, like the three or four confederacies idea that they keep bringing up as a, you know, dead horse to keep beating on that mm-hmm. the anti-federalists never argued for the first place, mm-hmm. he brings up this this phantom of, like, phantom argument of, look, if we don't do something really, really different, it's going to be chaos forever. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be war forever for no good reason. You, you know... To the people of the United States who just got done fighting the Revolutionary War, who were having real economic problems and stability problems, you know, with money and credit and trade, mm-hmm. I think to them, they're ready to just settle down and get to, to the business of life. Yeah. And anything that smacks of continued strife, they're going to be wanting to run from that. So I'm not buying it. I think they would. Mm-hmm. So that's my summation. Okay. But okay. that all being said, I'm looking forward to moving next into number seven, mm-hmm. and I hope to God that Mr. Hamilton never does anything like this to us again. <laughs> it was painful. Well, you <laughs> There know, was a lot there to digest. Listen, I mean, in, in some ways... We got ways, money's worth out of Wikipedia. I'm going to have to make a donation very soon. We got, we got and, and again, dear listeners, you know, uh, 
we're not historians here. We're just two two attorneys, and yeah. and we're enjoying through a romp through history. Yep. And and uh, hope you come maybe along Madame with us. Maybe Madame de Pompadour is much worse than we gave her credit for. And maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to where we can, you know, we try to flush out some of the references that the Federalists are making in the papers, uh, and add a little light into things, uh, so that maybe put a little few things into context to help people better understand uh, this set of documents that. Yeah. Is very Hopefully important. Hopefully, let us make to, context dumps in the future, as this paper demanded. This was this was a large dump, uh, as far as the amount of context. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe edit that part out. <laughs> so the um, um, no comment, no comment. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. Okay, all right, we'll come back. The um, uh, but anyways, if if uh, you know anyone wants to reach out to us now, you know we're up on Podbean. Uh, maybe you can listen to us there. Hopefully, on iTunes, it will be available uh, here shortly, and you can listen to us as well. Uh, and then uh, if you want to reach out to us and pose a question or make a comment in general, uh, we'd love to have them. Maybe we can start responding to some feedback uh, from listeners. Uh, you can reach us. We have an email. You can send us an email at paperlessfederalists at gmail.com and uh, shoot us an email. And then next time we go to record some episodes, we'll have them. Uh, I think the next time we sit down, we're going to try to record uh, 789. So if you want to read ahead uh, and give us some thoughts and then, and then pose a question or two, hopefully by the time... Uh, we're going to record. We'll have uh, a few a few things to respond to, and, and we'll go from there. So thanks for listening. I know this one's a little bit longer, but don't blame us. Blame Mr. Hamilton, okay? <laughs> for all problems in your life. I am going to from now on. Okay. Thanks and for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks again. Bye.